Hello everybody, welcome to another episode of Unordinary King. Today's episode, Better House Cleaning, is brought to you by Radiant Soul Yoga, who are now online and they are providing a smorgasbord of on-demand and live classes, as daily live classes. And uh, thanks to these guys, um, everyone out there listening has the opportunity to gather 30% off uh, if you go on and subscribe, you can get 30% off with the promo code PERKY56. <laughs> That's PERKY56, spelled P-E-R-K-Y-5-6. PERKY56, thank you so much, Danielle. And that gets you access to unlimited on-demand yoga classes so you can stretch and stretch and feel good to your heart's content until you can stretch no more. That's on-demand yoga classes unlimited. God damn, it's a... That's pretty good, pretty great deal. Um, so that's when you want, where you want, uh, well, where you want, anywhere in your house, I guess, which is fine. But look, it's convenient and it's bloody good for you. So get around it. Yoga, I love it. Um, thanks, Radiant Soul, I guess, for keeping me sane and happy and healthy during this uh, COVID-19 pandemic. It's a horrible time out there and a bit of self-love never goes, never goes too far. Anyway, so on to today's episode. I'm very, very excited to have on and share with you guys this wonderful guest, Emma Rose Bienvenue. I'm terribly sorry I've completely stuffed up her last name. I absolutely know that I've stuffed that. It's she, She's French-Canadian from Quebec, uh, Montreal, and, and I'm so sorry. <laughs> Anyway, she was an amazing guest to have on and I was super stoked. She um, sort of describes herself as a jack of all trades, master of some is her Twitter handle. Um, She has a BA, BCL, JD, she's a master of uh, economics and LLM. Uh, Quite frankly, I don't know what that means, it's just a whole lot of letters and a shitload more than what's in front of my name. Um, She's one smart cookie, but what she did, she wrote an amazing article for an online publication called Medium and that has gone absolutely bat poop crazy. Uh, the link to the article will be in the description for sure. So wherever you're subscribing on to and listening to, you can check out the subscription. Check on the link uh, and read the article. It's a ripper and it's titled Seven Predictions for a Post-Coronavirus World. And uh, as you read it, you really get the feeling that she's pretty much spot on. Um, so I had to, I felt really compelled to get her on the podcast and have a quick chat about it. And so honestly, without further ado, thank you so much, Emma, for jumping on the show. Here she is. Emma Rose, Bienvenue. There we go. Now I can hear you. Hey. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, it's nice to finally meet you. <laughs> Hello. Welcome. Welcome to my um, welcome to my show, Emma. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. No, thank you for jumping on. I'm absolutely stoked to have you on board. I think it's really cool. It's a really, really cool article. Um, I don't often read um, opinion pieces or many articles online. I try to um, go for fact-based articles and science-based articles. It's, but I just I was like, oh, okay, here we go. This will be interesting. And read it and I was like, oh, it's actually genuinely really, it's actually genuinely really good. So I was like very compelled to um, reach out to you and um, elaborate and, and ask and talk to you about it and elaborate on it. So let's talk about that. Yeah, I mean, I'm thrilled you did. The uh, it's funny. I mean, I also don't usually write articles like that. Um, it really was was born of just me spending this quarantine consuming just maniacal amounts of coronavirus content mm. and trying to get my 
own thoughts in order really for myself. The intent wasn't originally to publish it. Uh, but the response has been incredible. It's, uh, it's been read almost half a million times. Um, and uh, really, I think, generated a really interesting discussion around some of the predictions, which I think is, I, I'm more interested in that discussion than about the predictions turning out to be correct. But it's been, uh, it's been really fun. Yeah, great. So let's start off, um, I guess, with, first of all, who you are, because you're uh, sure. quite the credentials. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, by, I think what you mean with quite the credentials, I spent a lot of time in school. Um, <laughs> I, yeah. Yeah. So I have um, uh, sort of a joint undergrad from Georgetown and Stilspo in Paris, yeah. uh, where I looked at political science and economics, and then I got a master to grad school for economics and mm-hmm. finance yep. um, at, in a sort of joint program between Stolzbo and uh, Wharton and the law school at the University of Pennsylvania, uh, where I focused on international investment law um, and uh, sort of macroeconomic uh, graduate studies. Um, I then got a JD and a bachelor's of civil law from McGill, <laughs> um, and then in between that time, I also worked in Hong Kong, um, in telecoms. Wow. Um, I, and then most, I worked at a couple of the big Canadian, um, investment funds. So the wow. pension funds that are very large here, the, my latest one was, uh, CDPQ, which is almost actually over $300 billion now. It's a very large fund. Um, and then I worked, uh, most recently at a law firm in London called Linklater's doing banking and private equity. And so you're back in, uh, where are you based at the moment? So I'm I'm literally quarantining now. I grew up in Canada, in Montreal, but I, nice. I came back when they sealed the border just recently, about a month ago, yeah. um, having been based before that in New York. Right on. Are you glad to be not in New York at the moment? <sighs> Man, yes. <laughs> it's crazy. So I actually was lucky. I mean, consuming as I have been so much content, I think I was aware that it was going to be really bad far before most people were. And I mm. was kind of the, uh, you know, man in a tinfoil hat telling all my friends, get out of the city, this is really bad. <laughs> Everyone told me I was being crazy. But um, I think I, I was, you know, my, I'm, I'm, I wish I had been wrong at the time, but it's a really, really bad scene there right now. Yeah, it's intense. It's very apocalyptic. It's, yeah. uh, it's almost Orwellian, you know, like just the, the response and I don't know. I, I worry politically yeah. and I worry socially for people and just on a human level, just it really genuinely worries me. Yeah, I yeah. mean, I think it's, I mean, to say it's unprecedented is an understatement, but I think it's a reminder of, you know, when the world is so connected, it's also very vulnerable. The fragility of the world. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think there's an interesting trade-off, you know, between efficiency, which you have in a globalized world, and resiliency. Sure. Right, If when you're so interconnected, if one node gets knocked off, that contagion, I mean, no pun intended, is going to spread throughout the system. The whole system can break. Um, so, you know, I think, you know, it's going to prompt a real reckoning, I think, with how much we want to optimize our systems and how comfortable we are with the vulnerability that comes along with that. Do you think the vulnerability was somehow bought out of being a little bit naive because there's been a few generational gaps between, say, generations going through the first and second world war and and those types of depressions and those kinds of famines and hardships where say our parents uh in the uh, in our shall western world didn't quite go through what we're going well even the start of what we're going through now and so we just didn't quite have that resilience born within us do you think that's playing a part 
Yeah, I mean, I think you raise a really interesting point, right? I mean, if you were, so if you were born in 1900, when you were 18, you were getting sent off to fight in World War II, yeah. World War I, yeah. and then you hit the Great Depression when you were, whatever, 30, 35, and then when you're 45, you're sent off to a fight in World War II, right? So I think we, we underrate how <laughs> often, and I mean, how kind of, you know, almost like inherent to the human condition, these yeah. like major you know, apocalyptic seeming crises are, right? Like, I mean, can you imagine if you were that generation, how just crazy everything would seem, right? So I think we are getting a taste for the first time of what a true global, you know, existential crisis feels like. And I think it would be naive to to imagine it's going to be our last, frankly. Yeah, well, okay. It's still, like, I was listening to a podcast. It's interesting. I was listening to a podcast pretty, uh, just yesterday. I was skimming through. It's a long one. Skimming through it, and they raised a, I think Lex Friedman raised a a pretty interesting point, was that we've still got it really good. While we're going through uh, what people perceive to be a bit of a crisis, you, um, we're not starving, but food is not a problem. Uh, we still have electricity going, so people can still stay warm, especially what with the southern hemisphere now going coming out of or going through autumn and coming into winter, things are going to get a little bit harder. I think down here, um, whereas in the northern hemisphere, the transitioning out of winter into spring, but we're not having to think about food, and and I think things get really dire when that becomes a problem when people are like okay. I haven't eaten for a week, but we're pretty. We're still pretty fortunate, really, compared to what you were saying, like in the first and second world war, the Great Depressions. It's still not quite as dire as that. Yeah, of course. I mean, look, there's no doubt that you know between being sent off to fight in a war and being told to sit on your couch and not go outside, yeah. right, we do better. Um, I will say though, I mean, there's been some incredible footage coming out of the U.S. of these. I don't know if you've seen, but aerial shots of the lines of thousands of cars at food banks. And it's, that to me is kind of what really shakes me and what makes me think that, you know, this may be worse than I've personally experienced it. Yeah, for sure. Right? The, when, you, when you see the kind of social fallout that's going to come when this lasts not for, you know, a week or two, but in three months when people still don't have jobs and you still have these lines of, I mean, thousands of cars and they're waiting for, you know, six hours to get a $30 box of food. For their family, I mean that—that yeah. that is the kind of kind of existential threat that people feel that I think motivates them to, you know, politically I think act in ways that, that are really concerning. Yeah, they, yeah, that's exactly right. They start to act and really things start to get really full on, really intense, really quickly. I think in three months, I think, you know, I, I worry about the the one year to eighteen month mark if things, especially in the U.S. and parts of like you know the African continent and parts of Asia where things are you know where they have humanitarian camps and all that sort of those sorts of places, I worry for those for those situations. Yeah. I think you raise a really good point because um, I mean even the best healthcare systems are just completely cratered by this, right? And if this virus gets a stronghold in Africa where many countries have, you know, under 40 ventilators, even if we beat it back and contain it here, it's going to keep coming back, right? Because we're never going to contain the virus in Africa. They they just, they don't have the capacity for it. They don't have the resources for it. And I mean, even, you know, there's a human tragedy that's going to happen in the African continent, which is that, I mean, millions of people will die if it spreads uncontained. But there's also the fact that 
this is everyone's problem because if the virus gains a stronghold until we have herd immunity or a vaccine, it's going to keep coming back. So I think, you know, I mean, I hope Western governments will see that, but they need to really aggressively fund a containment strategy in Africa or they're going to be the ones that are hurt by that. And I think we're digressing maybe a little bit from your article, but do you think that people are putting a little bit too much stock into vaccines? I mean, yeah. I mean, if, if by too much stock you mean that they're 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 hedging their you know hopes on the vaccine being the solution. Look, I mean, the the record right now for vaccine development was months, and it took four years. Um, and to to be fair, you know, right now they're running concurrent trials for the most promising vaccines. Yeah. So that should shorten the timeline down. But to expect that it'll take less than you know twelve to eighteen months, I think is ridiculous and i think even 18 months is really optimistic it's quick i think the other the other problem is that this virus is really not life-threatening for the overwhelming majority of young healthy people yeah and so for a young healthy person who has the option between a vaccine that was really rushed through testing and a virus that really poses no threat they might take the virus and so you're going to have to have a vaccine that is really compellingly safe for people to be willing to take it and for you to get that herd immunity. And so I think there's a balancing between our desire to rush it through testing and acknowledging that once it's passed through whatever regulatory approvals we have, people still need to be willing to be injected with it. Um, So I think that, you know, the vaccine as our solution is pretty far off into the future and we have to figure out our interim dance steps first. Yeah, which is the social distancing and the testing and um, and the different measures that people are putting in all over. Well, there's, I mean, Sweden stands. The, they've made a little bit of headline recently with their strategy being a little bit different to the rest of the world, but they're trying to keep their economy ticking over. I think it a bit more of a, um, which is, I don't know, mixed results coming out of that. But I, yeah, I just, I, I, I agree. We're just, it's just. It's way too soon to tell, and I'm not quite sure how people are going to go. Just the vaccines, I think it's it's like a lottery ticket. You know, people are buying a bus ticket for the hope yeah. that the bus is going to turn up at the bus shelter, and I don't, I don't know if it's still going to be there yeah. yet. You know, we're just. I mean, we'll get a vaccine. We'll get a vaccine. I do think you think? The question is just, you know, can we really do this for a year and a half? Yeah. And if we do do this for a year and a half. Once we have the vaccine, like we're going to still have, you know, have to take stock of the rubble that we're left with. And I think it's going to be like a generational rebuild. I mean, I, you, you, it's never been done, right? Putting economies and not just certain economies, but like the world, you know, the critical mass of, of world economies on pause for a year and a half. I don't know that we have the resources or wherewithal to deal with that. So I think you're already seeing a backlash, particularly in, in the south of the U.S. against these social, you know, Trump encouraging people to go in a riot and, you know, mutiny against their governors, shutting down the economies. Mm. I think you're going to see that spreading if, if we keep doing this for, you know, three more months. By resources to deal with this, do you mean financial resources or do you mean like organic resources with food? And I mean, literally financial resources. Yeah. I mean that governments, government, I mean, the, the, there's a certain like kind of fixed pot of money in the world, right? Sure. And it needs to go certain places and largely it goes to investments. When governments are paying it to people, to like buy staples and hoard food, right? That is a kind of consumption that doesn't drive the world economy in a way we need for it to literally not collapse. And so when you're, you know, having that outlay of government spending for just basic subsistence consumption, Mm -hmm. you're going to get mass bankruptcies, more layoffs. And it's a self, you know, self-fulfilling prophecy that 
is going to crater the economy, I think, to a point where the governments can't even keep paying the subsistence incomes to their citizens. So I think we're going to have to have a waves of social distancing. Sure. Um, and I think, you know, we're going to have to settle on some interim measure, but it's going to be tough. And I guess there's a bit of a silver lining um, moving forward a little bit and going into the article that you wrote. There's a bit of a silver lining uh, that I personally see and some of the words that you wrote in terms of how countries are going to be coming out of this because things are going to change forever. Uh, there is no normal. I don't think we're ever going to go back to a normal. But in terms of the um, areas that you were talking about that are going to excel, businesses that I mean and uh, individuals and uh, which will flow on to countries and which countries are going to do well out of this, one of the big sectors that you talked about was automation. Uh, going online uh, and what I what pinged my interest with the automation was manufacturing uh, and specifically do with I think the science and technology world because they're going to be people are going to need science <laughs> and people are going to need technology to connect each other uh, we're going to need a vaccine and and this isn't the last virus that's going to hit us right so yeah. I guess I guess I want to talk about that a little bit I want to talk about what you think the silver lining between the manufacturing and what countries, uh, if that's going to prop up countries like that were, say, third world countries like that had big manufacturing plants and big manufacturing capabilities and versus countries like Australia that don't have massive manufacturing. Is, are we going to start seeing like a takeover of countries like economically versus other countries? Are we going to start seeing a shift? Yeah, so that's really interesting. I think, I mean, a few things. So I think you're you're right in pointing out that there is a silver lining in that, by necessity, we are going to automate many functions that, I mean, if you look at the history of what has been automated, none yeah. of the things that are automated are particularly attractive tasks, right? First, we had animals to, like, pull heavy things, right? Humans used to do that. And then we learned to use steam to pull heavy things. And then we learned to use computers to automate rote administrative functions. Sure. Right. So I think that though automation is scary because it causes some, you know, turnover in the job market and people have to retool themselves and their skills. It's generally, I think, been good for like human flourishing. Right. The tasks that we're automating are not particularly enjoyable. I think in manufacturing, the interesting component is that there's going to be an in-between phase where it's not automated. It's made a remote. Right. And so you have right now already for things like, you know, chicken processing plants, people need even in shutdown chicken and you cannot have as many people on the assembly line as you used to need. Sure. So you had this really, really fast turnover in the U.S. chicken industry where they figured out how to make the assembly line operators be able to perform their function remotely like from their house. And so you now have like a like a tenth of the amount of humans in these assembly lines. And they are otherwise in their living rooms operating, you know, the plants with these robotic arms remotely. I think that's a fantastic story, mm. right? That's a much better solution for everyone. And I think it shows that in crisis, right, humans, we have this like animal will to survive, like we figure things out. And so I think you're going to see a real acceleration in the kind of push by necessity, but still, you know, going to give us great technology to make the kind of staple industries that we need, even in shutdown, work. And then when you have the shutdowns lifted, I think we're going to have that technology and see it spread to you know non-critical industries that may have not needed it during the crisis, but that can still adopt and become more efficient with those technologies. Sure. Yeah, I can see that. I, I agree with you. I think even getting down to like coffee, getting coffee yeah. in the morning from the cafe, you know, putting yeah, well, your order I mean, in. 
Yeah. So that's interesting because I think there are kind of two sides to the automation that are going to accelerate here. There's sure. the first, which is, you know, necessity, make it remote, make it automated because people can't go in. But the second side is that, you know, a barista doesn't like won't be able to work if there's a virus, but a machine that can make you your coffee isn't going to get coronavirus. No. Right. And so labor replacing automation, you know, is often both kind of more efficient and more resilient to shocks like a pandemic. Yeah. It's just whether or not people want to put up with automated coffee machines or they want, you know, they want yeah. their, uh, their specialty. I'm a coffee snob. So I like, I like seeing I mean, a barista. I like seeing a person with a beard and a checkered shirt behind the coffee machine pouring me a coffee. I, I, yeah. Can, yeah, I mean, but, yeah, I think people probably said that about bank tellers when they invented ATMs. Yeah. Yeah. Although I've got to say that when I go to the supermarket now to buy stuff, I like using the express checkout lanes. <laughs> I'm, 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 whenever I'm, yeah. So um, I think, I, I t- yeah, I totally agree with you. Um, and so going back as well, um, in terms of, do you have, do you have anything to add in terms of whether you think that that some countries are going to come out of this better off than other countries because they already have the capabilities to upscale, I, I guess their 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 manufacturing and because that's what's going to win this really, isn't it? For countries, is can you produce something that's a necessity to the rest of the world, but not only your country, because there's. There's countries out there like where I come from, New Zealand. It's a largely tourism-based country, where, where and that's going to suffer because of that. And so, people are going to have to think outside the box there, which you know we're very good at doing. In terms of how is this country economically going to sustain itself in the next five, ten, twenty years from today? Yeah, I mean, I think it's going to be really important for countries to. There's there's a dangerous thing with, you know, hope, <laughs> because mm-hmm. if you hope and expect that, let's say, in a year and a half when we have a vaccine, things are going to go back to normal, yeah. you're not going to do anything in the interim to change your strategy, right? If you expect that the, the vaccine will be kind of floodgates and everything will come back and all this pent-up demand will return, I think you are going to waste a lot of time um, and ultimately harm yourself yeah. by waiting for that to come because it's not going to come, right? The yeah. reality is that even in a year and a half when you have vaccines, people, not everyone's going to get it. We don't know how to produce 6 billion vaccines, right? And people aren't going to travel as much. They like, even I think countries are going to impose a lot of restrictions. So a country like New Zealand, I think it's really important for people there to accept the reality that it's important to decouple, I think, the virus from the economic fallout, right? Because if you don't do that, then you expect that once the virus is tackled with a vaccine or herd immunity or what have you, the economic fallout will evaporate, right? And I think that's a mistake because I think that the experience of social isolation and the year and a half people are going to spend, you know, either in waves of social isolation or, you know, living their life but distancing more, I think that is going to have a lasting impact. So to your question about New Zealand, I think it's important that they understand that tourism will not return to its pre-crisis levels for some time um, and, you know, turn to alternative. I know you guys have a big milk industry. (laughs) (laughs) At one point in the world, it was we, New Zealand supplied one third of the world's dairy at one point. But that is crazy. It's a tiny little island. Yeah. It's crazy. Three, there's Um, three, three islands. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And so I think, yeah, so to your manufacturing question, I don't like my answer to this question because I think it's really unfortunate, but I think you're right. Right. I think if you see reshoring of production 
and generally automating what can be automated for manufacturing supply chains. The countries that used to benefit from these spillovers of technology and general know-how from, right, if you're a third world country that hosts a lot of offshore manufacturing because you have cheap labor or space or resources, you're not only benefiting from the salaries being paid to people, you know, people are learning how to operate the machinery, people might be, right, you have technological spillovers that were helping those countries, right, develop kind of organic businesses and organic capacity. Yeah. I think you're going to have that's going to stop, right? And so these those countries that used well because when you have, I mean not entirely obviously, but when you have a general trend of reshoring manufacturing to make supply chains more resilient and because you can automate parts of it so that cheap labor is less attractive, then those countries that used to benefit from those spillovers because of their cheap labor are no longer getting that contact. So I think it's going to be, you know, important for those countries to find ways to organically grow that kind of talent mm. and also for, you know, businesses to recognize that, you know, there are other benefits than just cheap labor to to sharing your know-how with those countries. Yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting. And I think one of the other um, interesting points that you raised as well was <clears> – <throat> Uh, like for example, in Australia at the moment, Australia's third wealth going back a few months now, I guess, going back, uh, in Australia, the third biggest export in the Australian industry was education. So it was, uh, foreign exchange students coming over and then upscaling in the, in the, in the, in the, uh, higher education sector with universities, uh, that no longer exists. And so uh, with what you're talking about, automation, uh, online learning, uh, people working from home, that's already begun to uh, affect the Australian university sector and and higher education sector. And I'm sure it's affecting everyone, a lot of universities and higher education sectors around the world. Is it necessarily a bad thing? Or are people just basing their surmises on yesterday's how schools operated yesterday versus how schools are going to operate tomorrow because it's it's changed forever now yeah i mean i think that's a really interesting question i think i mean a lot of the feedback i got on that prediction from the piece i wrote was i think misunderstanding the argument i was trying to make sure i don't it is not my belief that online learning is by definition more effective than in-person learning nor is it my belief that in-person learning is going to disappear Right. I predict that in-person learning has been taken as a given and not really considered in a cost-benefit point of view, where especially in the States, right, a four-year residential experience at a university costs, you know, what a house, what a nice house costs. And I think many, yeah, I mean, tuition at many universities is like $50,000 a year. And these are for programs that don't, I mean, there's no rationale for economically that program paying the dividend that's going to justify its cost. Mm. And I think it's socially seen as kind of a necessary rite of passage. But I think it is a good thing that we reassess that because particularly for less competitive universities, there is no economic justification for taking on that debt that people pay off until they're 45 years old to spend four years in dorms taking classes that really aren't going to, in the workplace, provide you any sort of return that justifies that. And I think these decisions are being made by kids that are 17 years old and that I don't think have kind of the wherewithal or are given the tools to assess the financial decision they're making. And I think the crisis, right, has put universities online by necessity. And I think it's going to be really interesting in the fall because many universities will not be back in person, right? We've already seen many U.S. colleges say that they're going to stay remote. 
but they're still going to be attempting to charge their pre-crisis tuition. And they're still going to have the same expenses that they had before the crisis, right? They have buildings, they have teachers. And I think by necessity, many of them are going to have to cut their expenses, be that by having you know less staff to maintain their gigantic campuses or literally <laughs> less office space. And because students just aren't going to do it, right? No one's going to pay $50,000 for an online class at a less competitive university. Yeah. So I think by necessity and also I mean, to compound their problem, state governments are the main source of income for many of the large and less competitive universities that don't have a big endowment. State governments have no money. They are Their finances are really reliant on sales taxes. People obviously aren't buying things right now because they're in quarantine. And they're having huge outlays of government resources just to deal with coronavirus. So in the immediate aftermath of like the peak crisis, they're going to have no money and there's going to be a lot of pressure from the state governments that fund these universities to also cut costs. Yeah. So I think you're going to see you know, an alternative being presented to students, which is, you know, don't come and live here for four years. You can do an online class, maybe work at the same time, or you can work collaboratively in groups with other students for a much lower cost. Now, maybe, you know, they're going to enjoy that less, or they're going to have marginally less engagement than if they were in person. But I think if they can do it for some small fraction of the cost, that's a positive development, right? The student debt crisis in the U.S. is unsustainable. And I think that you know, being given a viable alternative to the credentialing function of universities yep. is net net going to benefit students. Yeah, it's a it's a primitive it's a primitive uh, pathway, isn't it? I think it's uh, especially as you've I don't know I've I've always had this thing that you mentioned earlier about uh, seventeen and eighteen year olds uh, being charged with making a decision that's going to affect them for the rest of their lives and putting them in debt. Like you said, you you have a, a debt that's the that equates to what the deposit on a house would be for the first year. It's 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 ludicrous and insane just to think that you know. And and I personally I think that it's a it's not that the virus is a good thing, but it's a nice little shake up and a nice little reminder that you know I think the technology and the the systems are already there for yeah. for the world to change for the better. Um, you know, for people to come out of this and snap out of it and go, okay, but, you know, there's, there is actually a better way and we have the systems already in place to make exactly. that work. It's, it already exists. We've just got to like, the mentality just has to switch and just waiting for that to happen. Yeah. I mean, I think many of what people are calling, you know, ways that coronavirus is going to change the world are really just ways it's accelerated trends that were already underway. Sure. I mean, you already had some people going remote because we had the tools, but I think the experiment of forcing people to do it has made many people realize, I think, that they actually prefer it, right? Like, I personally, I've realized that in really focused work at home, I can get done in four hours what I would get done in eight hours where I'm in the office, right? You don't have to commute to work. You don't have disruptions. You don't have people coming into your office. You don't have, like, a long and, like, many, you know, when I think giving the option or forcing people to work remotely now is going to make it impossible not to give them that option after the crisis. Yeah, I agree. I totally agree with you. I think it's just, I, I, I totally agree with that segment of the article that you wrote about the, the uh, location working and remote working. It just makes so much sense. So why would a business that has someone that works on a computer have them work at yeah. home? It just makes so much sense. They don't have this, they don't have to have the same sized office. So there's def definitely going to be, people maybe they need in the office for something i don't know i don't know what but you know 
at the same time. I I expect, like, realistically, what's going to happen is that companies are just going to accept that they don't need the square footage to accommodate 100% of their workforce every day, right? I think they're definitely going to keep some office presence, right? There are some things that are better done in person, right? There's some things I prefer working on with the person I'm working collaboratively and brainstorming and getting things. But I don't want to do that every day. And there's certainly no reason for people who live in big cities to commute for an hour both ways, right? Make their workday two hours longer if they could get the same done at home. And for businesses that are paying, you know, millions of dollars in rent every month, I think it's really attractive, right? The idea that you could vastly downsize your workforce, give your employees the flexibility and control to know when they come in and when they don't, and still have the option to work collaboratively in a common space if they need to. So what happens? Say a good percentage of the workforce that works in the city and these massive offices that take up the footprint that they take up in the city that's non-residential and is commercial, uh, mm-hmm. and these people figure out that they can work from home and they don't have to live in the city or the suburbs, they can live out on the coast next to a beach and go surfing in the morning. Yeah. What happens to the cities? So I think, I mean, commercial real estate, I think, is going to feel a really, really, really tough time um, because I think you're going to have, first of all, a vast downsizing. Offices are also breeding grounds for virus, right? The idea that you're going to go sit in a space that is populated by a bunch of other people crammed oh, in gross. there. Gross. <laughs> yeah. So I think so. I think you're going to see a real downsize in commercial real estate. Yeah. I think you're going to see an exodus of white collar workers that are, you know, crammed into a tiny little one bedroom apartment in New York that they're paying, you know, five thousand dollars a month for. Go out. You know, I think it's going to be interesting to see kind of congregations of, you know, I think you're going to see a bunch of young people congregate in kind of second tier cities now, maybe by the coast and set up. I think working remotely doesn't mean working alone. Right. And I think what's attractive to me, I like being around people, but I like being around the people that I choose to be. And I think you're going to see a model of almost like what people do in co-working spaces, but where, you know, you can have a group of people that you like and admire that work on something different than you, where you still have a routine where you might go, you know, you might even go work in some common co-working space every day, but it's near your house. You're not commuting for an hour into the city, right? You're doing your own work for your own thing, but people don't necessarily have to be working on the same thing as you. I think for cities, it's going to be interesting because what do you do with all the commercial real estate, right? So I think, right. I mean, a lot of it, I think, will be repurposed for residential real estate, but it's going to be interesting to see what people decide to do with you know, these giant towers that really aren't set out for people to live in. Yeah. Yeah, it's, that, that'll be interesting. There, there was a, a few years ago here in Australia, there was um, – so we have a hardware store here called Bunnings, and they're owned by Woolworths or whatever the brand is, I think, in America. I can't remember. West Farm, not West Farmers. It doesn't really matter. Regardless, um, and then so they had this. Bunnings has the monopoly on the hardware in Australia. Uh, they're everywhere. They're like Starbucks or Seven Eleven. They're just everywhere, and they're great. They're amazing. They've got everything in there that you need. And so there's this obvious marketplace for uh, more hardware because there's only one person doing it, only one company doing it. So out comes the second company called Masters. Oh, they were actually, Masters is the one that's owned by Woolworth, sorry. So they came along and they tried to get a foothold in the Australian market to compete with Bunnings. It didn't work out. Billions of dollars was lost. Tons of jobs, thousands and thousands upon jobs were were lost. Uh, Not only that, but they'd set up hundreds of stores around the country that were their retail spaces that are now a good percentage of them are now still vacant, 
the people that have invested a lot of money into this commercial revenues and these commercial properties and now they're like yeah what, what are we going to do with these buildings and there and now I, I foresee the same sort of thing going on in the cities now where they're going to these massive skyscrapers that's with, interesting with yeah the lights i mean burning it, it, it's hard to it's hard to talk about silver linings because of just the human tragedy that's attached i don't want to downplay that right it is going to be terrible for anyone that works in commercial real estate but i do think it's interesting when you have a shake-up on this scale yeah. Right. And a crisis so much was destroyed. You still have room to build. Right. And I think it's interesting to think that once we come out of social isolation and take stock of everything we've lost, including you know commercial real estate, it is an opportunity to decide what you rebuild. Sure. Right. And I think as a kind of generational project, right, we get to choose how we want to do things going forward, having seen that the range of possible futures is much broader than we thought it was. Yeah. Right. And that we actually can not work from offices and we actually can not live in a door for four years. And right, we can do things differently. And I think we will. Yeah. Great. I like that. Um, and I guess the other thing that as well, like in terms of trends of, of, of uh, accelerating trends of experimentations, um, one of those trends that I've seen, I think that's becoming quite glaringly obvious is the climate trend to do with like fossil fuel burning, like a, but the oil, the oil industry is having a massive collapse at the moment. It's it's insane. I, a friend of mine was. I'm not quite sure. I, I can't substantiate this, but a friend of mine was telling me that some oil barrels were selling at a negative price. They were trying to yeah. get rid of their stock because they don't have room for it. They were exactly. So what happened was uh, these storage facilities in the U.S. Um, are very near capacity, and what was negative was oil futures. So the ability to purchase oil, you know, at some future date at a certain price. Yeah. But in order to be able to make good on that contract, you need to have the oil to give them at the future date when they're buying it from you. Sure. And there's just nowhere to put it now. And it's very expensive to store oil. So people were paying to get these contracts out of their hands because they couldn't afford to store or even kind of get their hands on it. It's crazy, crazy, crazy. I mean, a black swan event, that's nuts. <laughs> it's a good thing though. Like, And again, it's a, a, a maybe a minor collapse of an industry because I think oil is going to be around for a long time, unfortunately, because there's just, I mean, everywhere you look, every product, that everything that you, even stuff that you're wearing, uh, the food that you eat, a lot of things are bought to you or have had oil a part of it in, in, in any way. And I just don't think we're going to be rid of that, that, that fuel source or that... Um, you know, anytime soon, I just think that it's going to be like a little minor collapse of just or a reshake of 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 how the industry how it affects us on a, on a larger scale. I just think people have been making too much money out of it. <laughs> um, uh, the other thing that I find interesting is the political system and how this and how the social change is going to affect the political systems uh, in the Western countries. I mean, again, where you are in the North America with Canada and the US and how you think that if that's going to have a positive or a negative effect on, on, the, on the future and how that's going to look. I mean, I would give you a very different answer for both. Um, I think sure. they're two very different countries. Canada has been incredibly unified and you have a tremendous amount of buy-in in Canada for the social distancing measures and, you know, generally kind of heeding experts' advice. Yeah. Um, in the U.S., there's really been two narratives, right? There's been like, this is not a big deal and people are reacting from the Republicans and the Democrats saying this is a very big deal. You have to stay in. Um, in Canada, it's really been, there's only been one narrative and there's really no one contradicting that. 
So, I mean, if you look at Google released really interesting tracking statistics to using phones to see where social distancing measures have been most effective and most respected, mm. right? Track, yeah, anonymized, obviously, but in Canada, I mean, is Quebec actually where I am right now is leading North America well done. from all the states and yeah, yeah, very proud. <laughs> but uh, so, yeah, so I think, I mean, in Canada, I think Canada's always been a much more unified country, right? Yeah. There's much more buy-in to a set of values. You know, we very welcoming to immigrants. We, you know, have a really strong social safety net and everyone kind of agrees with that, right? There isn't really a politician that is saying, you know, we need to stop having immigrants come in. I mean, they're on the fringes, but they don't really have power. (laughs) I mean, in the U.S., obviously, you have much more polarization kind of inherently. And unfortunately, I think it's going to be very bad for, for the U.S. I mean, bad from my perspective, right? I have a certain set of political beliefs, which I think probably align more with the Democrats than the Republicans. But I think you... I mean, any event that makes people scared tends to make them kind of more protective of their group and more yep. skeptical of anyone that is in an outgroup, right? And so I think a viral threat in particular that was brought to the U.S. from a foreign country, I think, reinforces those kind of base instincts and fears and um, I think will lead. I mean, I think Trump is a uniquely weak candidate, so I don't know what's going to happen in the election. But I think even if the Democrats win the White House in November, I think you're going to see just a tremendous and escalating amount of polarization in the short term. Do you think people are going to go out and actually vote? Um, I mean, they, they didn't. So in, in – uh, was it Washington? No, it wasn't uh, – I can't remember which state it was, but there was one state where they held the election at the like peak of the coronavirus crisis and people still showed up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, they had a, I mean, not record turnout, but they had turnout that was above the average. Um, I think because people are, I think, so compelled by the political moment, right, just by the stakes. And on both sides, right, I think on both sides, people feel that this election more than any other matters. I think you're going to have a lot of mail-in voting, too. I think New York has already mandated um, mail-in voting for everyone. They're just automatically sending you a ballot. That's fantastic. I think that, that will help particularly for people who are otherwise, you know, vulnerable. Yeah, Queensland here in Australia, Queensland just recently had, what do you call it, a state election Um, and people were very worried about that and I know a little bit divided but I think it actually turned out pretty pretty well. Like um, Queensland's had pretty few cases of coronavirus and very few deaths. They've done very well actually. Australia's done, I think, I think, I think on the whole globally everyone's tackled the problem pretty bloody well everyone's done really well everyone's at large stayed at home and there's just been you know mm. you, you get your groups and your exceptions but um regarding the election I, I was surprised and people got on that bus and they went out there and they voted and I, which i think is really important people need to be taking charge of what happens tomorrow by actually voting because that's where the voice matters right yeah yeah definitely i read also that australia pretty early was doing mandatory quarantines for travelers coming into the country. Yes, that's right. There was two weeks. Really, two week. really ahead of the really ahead of the curve. I thought that was impressive. I think that's going to become fairly common across the world because if we look at how we get back, right, the only way to kind of get our economies back on track, failing a vaccine or herd immunity in the next let's say year and a half, yeah. is going to be that zones that have successfully contained it can reopen to keep everyone else out. Do right. So then that's really going to largely affect travel down in the future. Well, exactly. So if I'm, you know, Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, yeah. and I really have this under control, right? And like California, we have 
sufficiently you know, low amount of cases that we can, let's say, test and trace, right? If I reopen the economy and people come in, it's just going to, we're going to have another outbreak, right? The only way to reopen the economy and kind of capitalize on the efforts is to control state borders. And, you know, if anyone wants to come in, you have to mandatorily quarantine them in a hotel or for two weeks. Otherwise, I mean, I would love to be wrong about this because I think state borders are a bad thing, but I don't see it. I don't see an alternative. I agree. I agree. Until there's an actual vaccine, I just don't think. And and again, I'm not putting my eggs into that basket. I just think it's (laughs) it's it's a long bet. It's a long bet to think that that's going to be coming in the next sort of three to five years. It's wishful thinking. I mean, I think, look, I think, I think three to five years is actually like a realistic target. But I think these concurrent trials, so because they're usually when you develop a vaccine, you have like one kind of theory, you work on it, you yeah. test it. If it doesn't work, you work on another one. And now they're running, I think, seven in parallel. So that should like meaningfully speed things up, but it's not going to be less than 18 months, right? And that 18-month period, I think, is long enough that the emergency measures or kind of measures we adopt during the vaccine-less period are going to have a really meaningful lasting impact even after we have a vaccine. Yeah, nice. So moving on, what's what's next for you? <laughs> um, so I'm actually, I was working in London. Um, so I'm actually, I was supposed to write the New York bar to then just stay in New York permanently in July, but it's been cancelled. Um, so I am heading up to California instead, both because they have less virus and a bar to <laughs> They've got good juice smoothies there as well in California. They do, they do, and they have the beach as an Australian. I'm sure you can uh, relate to how important that is. Yeah, big surfer. Yeah, so um, so yeah, so I mean, I'm, I as you know, worked at at a law firm before, which was a wonderful experience. I actually enjoyed working at law firms, but increasingly think that you know the virus may be a time to to shake that up. And and I'm looking at some of the tech companies, and I'm very interested in tech policy oh, and yeah. how we how we, I think there are both tremendous opportunities and tremendous dangers from the technologies that we're developing. And I don't think it's possible to slow that development and that kind of relentless race forward. So I think it's really important to have really smart people making rules around them. And I think it's hard to convince smart people to work in government. Do you mean- So I think- the danger Sorry? with some of these, do you mean some of the dangers with these technologies? Do you sort of mean along the AI sort of, because that'll, that'll start to speed up now, won't it? They'll, they'll push for that. Yeah. I mean, there are kind of two things that worry me most. Sure. Um, I would say one is AI Yeah. because I just think we have no global strategy and it's terrifying when you go down that rabbit hole of looking at the potential dangers. And the other is a version of privacy. Um, my concern, so I think we think of privacy wrong, right? We think of privacy as the ability to conceal embarrassing or unflattering facts about us, right? And I think that is like a really bad branding because that's not actually what privacy is, right? I think privacy is really autonomy, right? Because the more I know about you, the more I know what makes you tick, the more I can make you do things you wouldn't otherwise have done. So the more you can manipulate my life. Good or bad. Yeah, but I mean, so so let's say I'm. I mean, there was a really interesting series of experiments by Facebook a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. where they wanted to see if they could control the mood of people on their platform. So, using all the information they knew about you, they tried to prompt you to feel happy, sad, hopeful, depressed, um, anxious, 
and it worked. And yeah. And when I think you and or for, for example, you know, Pokemon go, which was such an interesting little game <laughs> companies were paying Pokemon go to herd people to their store, right? They were paying them to get what's called footfall because if they stuck Pokemon's next to certain stores, people would go in and buy them or next to a Starbucks. And I think I'm really concerned about, and I think when, when you had, um, I don't know if you, there was a documentary that came out called the great hack about the Cambridge Analytica scandal. And I think it was a Netflix documentary. It was fine, but I think it's interesting because it's such a bad title because Cambridge Analytica didn't hack anything, right? They didn't like take advantage of a default in the code or they didn't trick someone into giving up their password. They just used Facebook the way it's meant to be used. They paid for ads. They, you know, paid to have people download their thing and it worked, right? And it worked and they were able to generate, I mean, in-person gatherings from these, these fake ads and stuff. So I think my, one of my biggest concerns and something I think about a lot, especially recently is people are giving up information about themselves because they don't think that anyone cares, right? Oh, who cares what I'm saying to my cousin? The tech company doesn't care. And I think they're misunderstanding what they're giving up, right? What they're really giving up is their autonomy and they're making themselves vulnerable to influence that they don't even know is happening. And that I think, you know, politically is very concerning. Yeah, I th- I th- I, it's one of the things I thought about a lot was when in your article you mentioned about Coca-Cola, uh, Coca-Cola pulling their ads out because people aren't spending money. They're just thinking of uh, – I just thought it was really interesting about the Pokemon thing because they're just – advertising's there. It's all, it's all around you really. Like a, the the great advertising thing is the the band T-shirt, you know, and people walking down the street or, the, you know, you're you're just a walking advertisement. Uh, and we all are in, in certain ways, um, and, but whether you choose to be or not, and I just I just think that it's a, people will find a way, or companies will find a way to to benefit or to, um, as you said, like the Pokemon thing. I, I didn't even know that they did that. To be honest with you, I just that that is <laughs> blowing the top of my tiny mind. I never even I never played Pokemon Go. I just I never got into Pokemon. It was beyond I was still in Ren and Stimpy. I still think I was still thinking about playing with the log. So I don't know. I think companies are gonna find a way to to cash in because <clears throat> there's opportunity there. They've just got to find it. You know? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I mean I think I also worry about it just politically, right? I mean, if you can mm. you leverage that data set that I mean knows everything about you, right? It knows how your heart rate, or if you have a wearable device, how your heart rate reacts to you know, a certain advertisement you're being shown, they could like build a profile of you that is so intricate when you collect all that data about you that I don't know how democracy really works, right? Democracy assumes like independent judgment. It assumes sure. there's like a marketplace of ideas and people make decisions. And I think that when you have the ability to, for a price, make people make decisions they wouldn't otherwise have made, right? And control them to a degree that they don't even understand. I think we we have to rethink you know, how our system works and how much faith we place in elections, really. So are people even making their own choices? Right. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> there's a really good, uh, there's a, um, I can't remember what his name is now, he's a um, neuro-linguist. He's a, he's, he fools people for a living. He, 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 um, I can't remember, I keep thinking of David Letterman, but that's not it. It's not it. It's not it. He's an English guy. It's. Uh, but regardless, he did this really amazing series where he's, 
He's like, he can take anyone off the street uh, and get, and the idea is that he can get an average person to rob a bank or he get the average average person to commit a murder within 24 hours or 12 hours by just programming them to think in a different way that they would not normally think or um, sit down with you and then by the end of the meeting that he's had with you, all of a sudden you think that you want a red BMX for your birthday, but before that you might not have wanted that at all. And it's just about planting seeds of thought or wants in people, uh, but different senses, sound, taste, sight, you know, colors. Um, and, 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 and infecting people in a different way to want something that they didn't know that they wanted in the first place or make them go at a different place or a different direction or think differently than what they thought. Yeah. That's fascinating. And I mean, right. If one like talented guy can do it, imagine what a company that knows literally everything about you can do. It knows what mood you're in, you know, like, and so I think, I think privacy is like, hasn't branded itself very well because people, I think reflexively think, you know, there's this idea that if you have nothing to hide, why do you want so much privacy? Right. And, and that implies that, well, those who do want their privacy have something to hide. Yeah. And I think that's not the point, right? The point is that it isn't about embarrassing or unflattering facts about you. It's about your autonomy, right? And those things that, you know, people don't know about you are, I think, what allows you the space to make independent decisions. Interesting. Uh, <laughs> let's, let's all uh, <laughs> collectively hope for a better future where, where I can... <laughs> Yeah, I just want to plant veggies in a garden somewhere. That's what I want to do, <laughs> to be honest with you. I mean, on a note of optimism, Go though, on, I mean, please. you, you, you yeah. mentioned AI. Mm-hmm. And I'm actually more optimistic now that we're going to find a global strategy for AI than I was before the crisis. Because I think this pandemic, and particularly its economic fallout, is going to be so devastating and so widespread that you'll have an initial wave of isolationism. But I do think that in the medium term, countries are going to just have to be pragmatic and accept that 21st century technologies, you know, be they viral threats or a super advanced AI, are existential, right? And it's everyone's problem if one of them escapes by accident or by intention. And so you need multilateral. No country, no matter how strong, can protect itself by acting alone. And I think that because you're going to have such deep and abiding scars from this pandemic, you're going to have a sense of like, okay, well, we need to do this now. And you're going to have multilateral cooperation on, I think, a range of issues, including AI. Yeah. Oh, well, personally, I just think they should open Pandora's box with AI. Let it out. <laughs> really? Yeah, I just... Really? I just, yeah, I just... So do you know the, um, the paperclip problem? Oh, please talk to me. Hit me, so, with, the, hit me with the problem. Okay, so the paperclip problem says, you know, let's say I find this AI and the problem with super advanced AI is it's very hard to give it an optimization function. Sure. Right? How do you tell it what to do without destroying the world? Mm -hmm. And one example is, okay, let's say I'm a paperclip manufacturer and I'm like, great, I have this super advanced AI, make paperclips. In six seconds, it's going to have turned the entire planet into paperclips. Right. And let's say you say, okay, no. So, um, I want you to optimize for human happiness. It's going to hook us up to morphine drips and we're going to be really happy. Right. It is very hard to give it a command of what to do 
without um, Parameters. ending up in really bad places. You also have, there's another really interesting thought experiment, which is um, the AI in a box experiment. So the people that say, you know, whatever, let's just do it. Let's see what happens. Say, worst case, we'll just turn it off, right? It's in a box. It's a computer. And it's hard, I think, to conceptualize that something much more intelligent than you is going to find a way out of the box, right? And the the thought kind of experiment is that people will, people who believe that we should not, you know, go all the way with AI until we figure this out, they take the role of the AI and they say, you know, I will take on anyone who believes we should go nuts with AI and just do it. And I'll be the AI and I will convince you to let me out of the box. And every time, every time the AI can, the AI person, the person playing that role convinces the other person to let them out of the box, right? Be it by saying, you know, if you don't kill your family, if you don't, if you do, I'll give you all this money, right? Something that is, it's like, imagine if you had a toddler who had the keys and you were trying to convince them to let you out of the box. Of course you'd be able to, right? And I think it's hard for us as humans who tend to deal with less complex organisms to understand just the orders of magnitude more advanced an AI would be. That's See, that's the thing. That's the kicker right there with all of those arguments is that you're putting organic parameters so um, into an unorganic life. So first of all, the first problem is, is life. What is it? So you're releasing something that's not actually alive. It's a... a well, so what, what is alive? That's right. So that's that's the kicker. So the so the paperclip thing to start with, it's like your 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 well not you to say, but the the argument is that it's going to go ahead and just make lots of paperclips and cover the world and paperclips would um, <laughs> be interesting. <laughs> but um, we're we're putting our organic parameters in place of a thing that we don't quite understand what it is yet. It's not quite mechanical because it's not going to be just a robot that uh, makes car doors, for example, and that's its job is just to weld that nut together into that car door. And so it gets so efficient at that that it not only does 10,000 in a second, it does a million in a second because we don't know that what happens if it starts changing the parameters for itself outside of that and starts, well, upscaling or downscaling, does it go, it's more efficient that I don't do anything? Do you know what I'm saying? Maybe. So, yeah, and, and I think like there are scenarios in which it doesn't kill us, but there are many in which it does. And I don't know that we have the tools or information to make a strategy and develop it in a way that we are sure it's not going to kill everyone. Yep, I agree. Yep. Yeah, but I mean, we also don't have a strategy to not do that, right? Like we have no global strategy that is viable to contain the development of this, of a super advanced AI. So, I mean, it's kind of interesting. Um, there's another thought experiment that I really like called, uh, that looks at existential threats to mankind, right? Yeah. And it's, imagine you have an urn with beads, okay. right? And there are a couple of black beads in this thing. And the black bead is a technology that's going to kill all of humanity. Yeah. And up to now, we have basically just been taking beads out of this thing, right? We've just been racing ahead in scientific development, knowing that, yeah, there are a couple of black beads, but whatever, we'll deal with it when we do. And, you know, we took out nuclear bombs from that urn, right? And we just got lucky that it's really hard to make a nuclear bomb, right? It, it is feasible that nuclear bombs could have been achieved by, you know, microwaving some sand or something. Yeah. And that would have been the black thing that, that killed us, right? Yeah. And I think AI is probably... <laughs> 
kind of like a nuclear bomb you can make by microwaving some sand, right? I think if we, if we just race ahead without questioning whether we really want to take this particular thing out of the urn, I think we're, I mean, I, we are definitely risking our own annihilation. And, you know, I would prefer that not happen. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I, I, I really don't. What I mean by letting it out of Pandora's box, I don't want people to die on a mass scale because of uh, the Terminator coming out. I just, I really don't really don't want that to happen i like life like <laughs> but um i i just don't think that i just don't think that robots or the the ai is going to think in the same linear fashion that we think in there because one time doesn't exist for them and time does for us i hope you're right yeah i just think it's like uh uh the complex problems often have really simple solutions and so i just think um you know, and I think that's what it'll be like. This is my this is my thought, my completely uneducated, moron, <laughs> ape self thought is that um, it, it'll just oversimplify things, and I think it'll just end up if it does branch out and then go. Oh, okay, now I'm bigger than everything else. It'll just think, what's the most efficient thing I can do? And it's just do nothing, just sit in the sun and <laughs> cook you by somewhere and you, sip you on martinis. Yeah. Um, has has this line where he says he thinks you know the most optimistic version of super advanced AI, you know, if we reach a singularity is that we become effectively it's house cats. <laughs> it's like just, Oh, sweet humans, <laughs> you yeah. know, keep us around. Cats have got a pretty good life. Right. That's, that's what I think. <laughs> yeah. So that's a good way to look at it. Um, I'm going to wrap it up cause I'm sure you've got a really busy day after the <laughs> response that you've had on your incredible article. Are you going to do more articles? <sighs> I think so. I, I'm actually, I'm actually thinking of doing a follow up about. I don't know if you saw South Korea and Europe have announced that their stimulus packages are going to be effectively green new deals. So they are going to put the low carbon transmission at the heart of their stimulus packages. Excellent. On the rationale, which I think is really compelling, that the size of this stimulus we're going to need to recover from this crisis is something you see once in every couple generations, yeah. right? It's just impossible for government to do it twice. And it's also the size of stimulus that we're going to need if we're going to tackle the climate change problem in time, right? And we can't have both, right? We can't do a stimulus now that has no regard for the low carbon transmission and then in 10 years do another one that's meant to address the climate crisis. We kind of have to kill two birds with one stone. Mm. Um, and I think it's really encouraging when South Korea and Europe are doing it. I would say I am very cautiously optimistic that the u.s might but it's probably misguided they probably won't but i think the, the the argument the rationale for tying them together is unintuitive right many people will say no you have to optimize only for the economy because the economic crisis is so bad yeah sure and it's yeah. it's true that anything that optimizes for economic recovery and something else right including climate change is going to get you slightly less economic recovery but i think that we kind of don't have a choice, right? If we do it, we have a fighting chance of surviving. Yeah. But if we don't, we should just start drafting apology notes for our grandkids. <laughs> like <it's- laughs> I think we've already started drafting that. And maybe actually that's what this virus is and that's why it doesn't affect children. It's, it's mother nature just going, <laughs> yeah. well, the adults weren't it's doing a very the, good job of it. Let's, our lesson. You Gosh. know, it's, the kids are going to, half the kids in the world are way smarter than half the adults anyway. So just let, <laughs> them, let, let them loose. They know what the hell they're doing. <laughs> right. Um, well, I'm excited if you write and if you write another article, I'll almost definitely read it. Uh, you, it was a really good, engaging article. 
um, and was well written, well articulate, and thoughtful, and um, really easy to understand for morons like myself that <laughs> don't don't have just quite the same credentials that you've got. So, um, yeah. thank you so much for passing your knowledge and your thoughts. Yeah, they're very welcome. Thank you so much for having me on. No worries. Thank you for jumping on. Goodness, kidding me? It was amazing. Um, yeah, thank you. Enjoy your day and the rest of, uh, thank you so much. Rest of your week. And I'll thank you. This was great. No worries. Bye-bye. All right. Take care.